Imagine finding out that you have less than 24 hours to live. To complicate matters further, imagine that you were nearly 19,000 feet up one of the tallest mountains in the world. How would you respond? What deals would you make in the event you survive? Today's guests dealt with this firsthand. This is Beyond the Check. When it comes to work, what is your big why? If you didn't need the money, would you still show up to your job? I'm John Weems. I've spent half of my career in the corporate world and the other half in full-time spiritual guidance as a pastor. I respect people of all views unless they are totally closed-minded a-holes. Welcome to Beyond the Check, the podcast where we talk about the big why of work and life. Today, I am honored to host Susan Gustafson and Frank Artress, who have traveled nearly 10,000 miles to be here. They lead the Foundation for African Medicine and Education, or FAME, focused on advancing medical care in rural Tanzania. To ensure all is out in the open, I was so moved by their work that I recently agreed to serve on the board of directors. When Frank and Susan survived the harrowing ordeal they'll share more about, they encountered a scenario with approximately three doctors for 250,000 people. Susan and Frank, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much for having us. Okay. Happy to be here. So we will we'll get to the harrowing parts of your very compelling story very shortly, but our listeners enjoy uh, first hearing often about the early life of guests. So uh, do you mind starting? And maybe, Susan, you start. What did you think you wanted to do when you were growing up? I was pretty sure I wanted to be a veterinarian. <laughs> I loved animals. We lived out in the country. I went to this goat farm every day, and I wanted to care for animals. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. yeah. How about you, Frank? I knew I wanted to be a doctor since I was four years old. I <laughs> fell off my horse, broke my arm, went to an orthopedic surgeon who I thought was the coolest guy in the world, and I said, that's what I'm going to be. Mm. So I knew at age four I was going to be a doctor. One of the lucky guys, yeah. yeah. But you both, you always had helping tendencies, it sounds like, from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And both loved animals. <laughs> okay. And what was your very first paid job? My very first paid job was shoveling horse poop. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how much I loved animals. I worked on a farm shoveling horse poop for minimum minimum wage. I worked in a little retail clothing store in a shopping mall in high school, and I think I I disliked it so much I can't remember the name of the retail chain. <laughs> You've just purged it from your memory? I purged it from my brain. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, that could you be know. a good defense mechanism. That's good. Yeah. Well, how, so I guess we'll, we'll get to this. Tell us a little bit about life before the big trip, before Kilimanjaro, which we'll talk about shortly. Tell us a little about what life was like. You, you knew you wanted to be helpful to, to animals, to humans, to the world in general. What, what did life look like as we fast forward into adulthood for you? I think as far as like the last 20 years before mm -hmm. we, we moved over there, uh, we were, it was kind of unusual because both of us, absolutely loved our jobs. I was a cardiac anesthesiologist. Susan was an educational psychologist working with primary school kids. But both of us looked forward to going to work like it was play, like it was fun. You know, we thoroughly enjoyed our jobs. Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, my career tra trajectory took me down the psychology route, and so I studied psychology as an undergrad. And then and then became an elementary school counselor in a, in a public school system for about 16 years and, and, and loved working with kids. It was you know, primarily focused on children who'd been traumatized or 
um, were facing lots of stressors that were interfering with their uh, school achievement. And then I kind of segued from that into um, educational psych and, and, and more special needs, dealing with children's learning needs as well. So, um, so yeah, it was the helping, kind of helping profession from the start. Yeah. So you, you, are, you had fulfilling jobs already. Yes. Um, and I think in, in one of the first interviews or videos I heard with you, Frank, you, you described yourself as kind of a, a he who has the most toys wins kind of mindset. <laughs> you, can you say a little bit about that? Well, I a um, couple of things. We used to travel a lot. When I first met Susan, she's working in the school system, so she had three months a year off. So I took three months a year off. So we had three months a year to just travel. And... Uh, Every time we'd come back from traveling, I'd kind of go, wow, we really need to consider simplifying our lives maybe, do a little something useful. But it would take me about a week, and I would get sucked right back into this um, materialistic, and I mean, it was just anything that came up. I needed to buy this piece of art, a new motorcycle, a new car, a faster this, uh, just gadgets, computers, toys, trick things. I It just... I was in the materialistic rut. I mean, it was just buy, buy, buy. So, so you're in that mindset. You have, you have you're helping the world. You have fulfilling careers already. But one of those trips uh, takes you to Kilimanjaro. Just walk us through what it, certainly was a defining moment in your lives. We had gone to Tanzania the year before. Uh, and just fell in love with the country and the people. So we decided we would go back for what was my 50th and Susan's 40th birthday and climb Kilimanjaro for um, just for our respective birthdays. You want to hear the whole story, Oh, John? please, okay. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we uh, started the climb. It was a fabulous climb. Um, and uh, we were doing really, really well. And then at about 18,000 feet, uh, suddenly Frank wasn't doing very well. <laughs> so we, that we'd stopped, we'd spent the whole day climbing up a steep rocky face and then stopped at about eight, about 18,000 feet for a late lunch. And, uh, I, of course, nothing ever gets my appetite. So I ate everything, all my food, all Susan's food, all everybody else's <laughs> food. And within about 90 seconds, I went from being completely normal to full-blown high-altitude pulmonary edema. Hmm. And, you know, being an anesthesiologist, I knew what the problem was, and I knew I had to get down because I couldn't breathe, I couldn't talk, my nail beds were turning black, I was gurgling with every breath I took, and I told the guide, I said, i got to get down or I'm going to die. And he goes, oh, no, you can't, because this... Rocky face gets way too unstable in the afternoon. We have to get off this face, go up higher. It's windy, too. Yeah, mm. it's really yeah. windy. Yeah. So we did. We had to climb on up to Summit Camp, which is about 18,400 feet. And that's where we kind of stopped and tried to regroup and make a plan. So you're climbing yourself at that one, or they're carrying you? No, I'm climbing myself. Mm-hmm. He's still Knowing on. what you know. Yeah. And he was the only medical one on on the trip, you know. <laughs> so I, I'm trying to give them really quick lessons on how to do CPR, but it's a little hard when you can't talk and can't breathe. So we get up there. In fact, you were also having, you know, ch- uh, crushing chest, chest pain. And so yeah. we weren't sure. I mean, we knew that he was in pulmonary edema, but um, but I br- brought some nitroglycerin along just 
you know, kind of as a backup plan. And so, I mean, that's where you realize what adrenaline can do. Mm-hmm. Um, because I sprinted to the packs that the porters had been carrying to get this nitroglycerin, bring it to him and just see if he'd get any relief at all. And, you know, he put that under his tongue and, and, um, nothing changed. He just, he was really, really going downhill fast. It was, uh, it was pretty obvious to me that we couldn't get down because of the lack landslides. We couldn't go up higher because I couldn't breathe it. I told Susan that there's, probably better than a 75% chance that I'm not going to get off this mountain alive. Mm. That I, I we're think sitting above the clouds, we were, yeah, yeah, we were above the clouds, sitting on a rock, kind of looking straight across at the face of Kilimanjaro. And when I told her that, and we both had a good cry for a few minutes. And then the thing that really surprised me is it wasn't the oh my goodness, I'm dying with a panic sort of a feel. It was actually, what I had was a feeling of regret. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow. All they're going to be able to say is that Frank died with the most toys. I mean, my life has really been selfish and kind of self-centered and worthless up until now. And and I remember having this real strong sense of, I wish there was some way... I could do this all over again. Hmm. I wish I could have a do-over on my life. So instead of the person who has their life flash before their eyes in an instant, you have a whole night Yeah, think about it. Ooh. Susan, what's going through your mind at this time? Oh, you know, I think, you know, I was just thinking, you know, how can we keep him alive? How mm-hmm. can we, you know help him to survive this and so you know we really couldn't do anything at that point so um the the our guide Capania and and the porters were just extraordinary in in this moment but we you know we tried to get him into bed keep him warm in the tent mm-hmm. um with a plan to the next morning uh you know try to get him down to lower elevation but at midnight he he uh he he woke me and I was I was not really asleep, but yeah. I mean, he just said, if we don't try something now, I'll be dead by morning. So I went and rallied the the porters and, and our friend Capania, who who was guiding the trip, and said, we've got to do something. Mm. And so, I mean, remarkably, he stayed upright um, with people, porters supporting him on each side, because we had to go up uh, to Gilman's Point. So we still had to go up higher and then down the backside at midnight. We started this process at midnight. And I remember the porters singing uh, just these beautiful acapella songs. Mm. And it was, it, was so, it was just so comforting to me. And then at about, I think you were at about 15,000 feet, is that right, when you went unconscious? Oh, after we went over the top. Yeah. Yeah, I could take about, going up there, I could take about 10 steps monitoring my heart. When it got over 200, I knew I had to stop and wait till it calmed down uh, or I'd fibrillate. And so then when it slowed down a little bit back down to about 160 i'd take about 10 more steps and we did that all night long and we finally summited over gilman's point which is about 193 or no, something it's 19 yeah and uh down the other side and then i finally just yeah i passed out i went completely unconscious and this was you know long before there was any kind of really formal evac <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, medical emergency evac on on the mountain and so um, one of the porters had had run down, literally run down to to the bottom and gotten a stretcher, mm. and he runs back up with it, and the stretcher's broken. 
So they're having to just rebuild the stretcher. I, and they, they rallied. They did. And then they just put Frank on it, wrapped him in a sleeping bag, and then wrapped him up really tight. And there was a guy at each corner, and they just ran you know, full out, racing him on down the mountain. And the other porters stayed with me. Um, you know, it had been a lot of hiking, so, you know, I was moving slow at that point yeah. <laughs> until we, we got down to, you started coming around again at about 5,000 foot. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it was, we got down lower and he finally came to again and you could just tell that's exactly what his body had needed. You know, he knew that all along. It was terribly weak and, but at least he started spiffing up a little. <laughs> <laughs> it was less scary at that point. <laughs> So where where along the way did you get uh, kind of the the big life changing question? You said you had this this sense that maybe there'd be a do over. Uh, it was when- actually when I w- when we were sitting, we were still at summit camp at about mm-hmm. eighteen four, and we were watching the sun go down on the face of Kilimanjaro, which was just straight across from us, and that's when I I sat there and I thought, wow, it wasn't. I didn't have a sense of, oh, my goodness, I'm afraid to die. Mm-hmm. But it was, I wish I could do my life over again because it suddenly became so obvious to me that what I'd been doing was really stupid. I mean, what what good does it do just to collect stuff? You know, but that didn't was... even, you know, we didn't, we didn't really know what that was going to look like yeah. until we... You know, until you got to the doctor yeah. the next day. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it, it was um, that's, but it was sitting there at eighteen four watching the sun go down, and uh, mm. that's when I thought, "Wow, I wish there was some way I could do my life over again. I would, I would definitely do something different. This is this whole materialistic buying binge was just. It suddenly seemed like such a waste." So crazy. So you're at the doctor the next day? Yeah. Um, Frank Frank refused to go to the medical facility mm-hmm. that they wanted him to go to, the, the porters. He just said, you know, I'm, I'm a doctor. I think I'm going to be fine. You know, just I need to rest. I need mm-hmm. to get. And so <clears throat> we went to this little, this little uh, guest house in, in Arusha and then... Didn't Capania call you the very next yeah, morning? Yeah, the next no, coming? the next morning they showed up. Yeah, they showed up. The guide showed up and said, "We're taking you to this doctor." It was an American trained doctor in Arusha, so they took me to the doctor who checked me all out and confirmed kind of what I already knew that it was pulmonary edema, and that um, I was okay now that I was down out of the elevation. So when he got all done checking me out, he kind of looks at me quietly for a minute and then he goes frank you'll be okay but you know they need doctors in tanzania a lot more than they need them in california (laughs) and uh (laughs) so he he told us then that he and his wife were planning to build a hospital in arusha they allegedly had all the funding they had the plans they had the property they just wanted some help to build this hospital. So we told him, we said, well, it's been kind of a rough couple days. Could we think about it overnight? (laughs) And so we thought about it overnight. We went back to our little hotel we were staying at. And uh, the funny thing was, is that it took us, I would say literally less than two minutes to both go. Yeah. 
We were it, so immediately on the same page. It's mm-hmm. time to do yeah. something different. It's time to make a change. And the miracle, and what I will never take for granted, is that Susan was on the exact same page with me because mm-hmm. that's that's rare. Yes. So a lot of people make deals <laughs> when it seems <laughs> like life's about to end, right? Um, and and you said this is you. You came back. You were thinking maybe you want to change. You come back from a trip and you were kind of sucked back into the vortex. Yeah. What was it like this time? How when when you returned home did you was there a, any possibility of you getting sucked back into the? This time it was totally different. It shocked both of us. First of all, when we drove in, we landed in San Francisco Airport. When we drove in to Modesto, it felt like we were in a foreign planet like we were on some other universe alternative universe it just felt it was dark remember but it just felt very very (laughs) surreal and but the thing that was even more profound was when we got to our house normally after a trip i would walk around and reconnect with all my stuff yeah oh my picasso Ooh, this beautiful <laughs> miro and oh my motorcycle you know go out and pet my car and and uh but this time when we we got out of the car walked into our house it really felt like you were walking in maybe to somebody else's garage that was just full of trash mm. you just we looked around and both of us go this is a lot of just worthless junk. Why, why do we have all this? It absolutely felt so completely different. And so we immediately started offloading everything. Was, uh, so what, what percentage of possessions do you say you got rid of, maybe? Probably 90, 95, 95%. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and we, and we did it in a variety of ways. We had kind of just a bunch of, put everything out and had friends come over and just take stuff, take whatever they wanted. Um, and then we sold some of it. Um, yeah. And then at the very end, I remember this was also another very, um, for me, very liberating moment was the few things that we did keep went inside this little container. I remember a 20-foot 20 20 container. And, and when the when the car picked it up and hauled it away, it was like, oh, my gosh, I feel so much lighter. Mm. I just – it was a sense of, you know, just even that. It, you know, it's like, wow, life can really be this simple. Yeah. <laughs> so you, but in, in, in addition to just getting rid of all the stuff, it also meant selling the house, selling yeah, the retirement home, selling the vacation condo, selling all the vehicles, the motorcycles, the – Everything. Mm-hmm. We just sold or gave away absolutely everything. We yeah. did we did a lot of giving away. Like I had a very expensive Bianchi racing bike and there was some kid who was an orderly at the hospital that struggled getting to work every day on this old beat up bike. And I just gave him this. You made his year. Yeah. Oh, he started <laughs> he crying and so hugged me. And <laughs> so we did a lot of that, just giving stuff away to people that really needed it. So you had, it sounds like you had a, a lot of people right now are, you know, Marie Kondo, does, does this spark joy? They tell them to go hold everything they own and get rid of the things that don't yes. spark joy. You went through an extreme version of <laughs> Very extreme. Yes, yes. Very extreme. <laughs> I mean, all of our scuba diving stuff, our snow skiing stuff, or everything yeah. just everything <laughs> it was it was really kind of i think probably the the moment that i felt like the most completely liberated was when we went down shut down our mailbox 
And they said, what's your forwarding address? And we said, we don't have one. Mm. And it was like, wow, that's it. This is cutting the all these ties. Of a journey. <laughs> yeah. I don't know where it's going to head. So that, that's a perfect transition. So you you do not have an address for a moment. You're you've <laughs> been liberated from your stuff. You go to Tanzania. You've heard uh, tales of land and things that were already set. What was the reality you encountered? And, and as oh. you prepared to start, what became fame? <laughs> well, I think part of the reason we were so okay with just saying, yeah, let's go do mm-hmm. this, is we thought we were joining an already well-formed program. I mean, they allegedly had all the funding, $5 million pledged. They had the plans drawn up. They had the property bought. When we got there, when we arrived back in Tanzania with literally a suitcase in each hand, we discovered that one doctor, the, the guy had gotten sick, had to be raced to Nairobi for emergency surgery, and subsequently died. And the wife just disappeared. So when we got back to Tanzania, there was nothing. There was no plan. There was no funding. There was no property. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And Susan and I are sitting there like, oh, my goodness. What now? <laughs> what now? We we know absolutely nothing about raising money, building a hospital, running a nonprofit. We thought all that was going to be taken care of. And so I remember just standing there, and and we finally went, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time, (laughs) so I'm pretty sure it's still a good idea. So let's just hang around, start working here, learn what we can, and see what happens. Life 101 in Tanzania. (laughs) So so what did those early days look like? Oh my goodness. <laughs> we we rented a little apartment in probably one of the noisiest, busiest, dirtiest, nastiest streets in all of Arusha. So third I mean story flat. Yeah, yeah. a little third story mm-hmm. flat. And so we were thrust right into the bowels of a an amazingly noisy third world city right away. And I got a job at a little hospital that uh was run by a wonderful Tanzanian surgeon. Susan went to work at the at the international school. So she was doing her job. I was doing doctoring and basically intense learning. So Mm -hmm. I was just every day learning about, you know, how to be an African doctor instead of a California cardiac anesthesiologist. How, how long did it take until some, well, if there was a new normal until it felt like, okay, we're getting into a rhythm or did you ever feel (laughs) that way? I can answer that. You go right ahead. We had always said, people would ask us, how long are you going to do this? Mm -hmm. Are you guys just going to go over there for like five years? And we always said, we're going to do it until it's not fun anymore. Mm -hmm. So we we lived in Arusha for two years. And I think that whole two years, Susan wasn't sure it was fun anymore. Mm. You know, it was just, it was a noisy, busy, dirty city. And it just, it was kind of like, I don't know if we can do this the rest of our lives. And so then after two years, we finally, after doing a lot of studying and research and all, we moved up to Karatu, which was way out in the country and was one of the areas of highest need in Tanzania. And that was the moment I think at least I and maybe Susan kind of felt like, yeah, now this feels like home. This is what we need to be doing. Yeah, I mean, we've been in Arusha for two years and, and really, you know, not only trying to, to learn how to do life in, mm-hmm. a, in a 
culture very different than our own and an environment very different than our what we were used to but um but also trying to get you know the project off the ground and you know we had formed a 501c3 in the u.s and you know we're raising money we had you know a, a vision um but the doors just were not opening you know we we, we would get we would get really close to the perfect place to build a mm-hmm. hospital and it would fall apart and that happened over and over over again oh many times and a, and a very dear friend of ours who was actually bringing her children she had an orphanage and she was bringing her children back then seven hour drive whenever they would get sick Hmm. to uh arusha to this little clinic to see to see frank and um she said why don't you come up to karatu and and you know consider putting the hospital here there's just such limited resources up here in terms of medical care and so we're like okay and uh, so we went up there, and first of all, I mean, just like you, because we both grew up in very rural environments, mm-hmm. but it was sort of like, man, I have come home. It was just, it was, it was one of those moments, and and the doors just started opening. It's mm. like within a week, you know, we were talking to this old farmer who, you know, he didn't want to sell any land for a commercial project, but when he heard it was going to be a community hospital, he was like, I'll sell you this piece of land. Hmm. And it just, it just, everything started to flow. So how, at that point, how many doctors for how many people? What's, what's the ratio? When, Karatu, when we first got to Karatu, that was part of the research we'd done ahead of time. We discovered there were three MDs for a population of 240,000 people. And, you know, the U.S. has one doctor for every 390 people, roughly. Mm-hmm. And Tanzania has one doctor for every 50,000 people. And when you get out in the rural areas like we were, it's closer to one doctor for every 100,000 people, which is just mind-boggling when you think about it. You know, when you think about how resource-deprived they are as far as any medical care, equipment, doctors people, medicine, anything. It's its pretty scary. And so how does it work now? So the, the average Tanzanian has a medical issue. Can they just show up or how, you know, how does the organization right. work? It's a drop in, it's a drop in clinic. So, you know, you know, you know, and, and so there's this, these waves of people mm-hmm. that show up. It's, you know, there's no appointment culture. So, you know, there might not be anybody there until 10 and then a hundred people show up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, um, I, I think one of the unique features is it's same-day service. I mean, you know, you get you get seen by a doctor, and then you, you know, if you need labs, you get referred to the lab, and then you come back to the doctor, and then you get your medicine, and then you go home. But we have a lot of people, you know, who are traveling quite a distance to get there um, by local transport, by motorcycle, by walking. Um, sometimes they all come as a big extended family because they're coming from four hours away. Mm-hmm. Um what range of services do you provide now, and, and maybe what other things are on the horizon? What needs do you have? What, when I first started out in Tanzania, we were actually doing medicine with basically nothing. We had no x-ray. We had no lab. We had, I mean, it was, it was primitive. You, just, you would diagnose people just history and physical and with your stethoscope and looking at them. Good clinical skills, right? <laughs> and Yeah, so you really had to develop your clinical skills. And we've slowly built up to where we have a very good lab now. And so we, 
we have an amazing laboratory, probably one of the better ones in the Tanzania whole country. Uh, we now have x-ray, we have ultrasound, we have, you know, we're able to offer a lot of the diagnostic pieces that are really necessary. We were, what, strictly OPD, strictly outpatient clinic for the first three and a half years. Yeah, we opened up up the outpatient clinic with two doctors, two Tanzanian doctors, and five nurses. And uh, it, we had saw that first year, we saw 4,900 patients. And then it just slowly grew to where we now see over 26, 27,000 patients a year. And when we opened the hospital in 2014, um, that was a big milestone to be able to admit patients. And that's when kind of things started taking a huge jump as far as more people coming. And and the word was, was getting out that we provided something very different from what they'd been able to get anyplace else. And the word spreads in Tanzania. It's, it's amazing that the communication system they have so when word gets out that here's a place a hospital where they actually get the correct diagnosis give you the correct medicine and you get better the word spreads and we have slowly over the last five to seven years kept getting patients from further and further and further away and we have a a team of uh, 12 so Tanzanian now we're in doctors now. So 150 people on the staff, but about 12 doctors and f- uh, almost 50 nurses. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's one of the things that impresses me and, and some of my listeners who have not been involved in various forms of global service. A lot of times people come in like Wonder Woman and Superman to another country and we're going to save the day. And, you know, and then they get bored and leave and everything's left to crumble. Obviously, you are not doing that. Um, talk about how you have, have worked to empower the local people in, in terms of training and, and helping to, to own the program. Mm-hmm. I think that probably really became clear for me when I first went to work in Arusha, when I was learning African medicine. I first had a meeting with all the doctors there, and the the tension and hostility was sort of palpable in the room. Mm-hmm. And I remember that, feeling like these guys were all thinking – oh, here's another guy that thinks he's the great white savior and is going to come mm-hmm. tell us how to do things right and all that. And when I made it very plain to them that I was there to learn, mm-hmm. then all that changed and it sort of has become a very much a two-way street. I can share stuff that I know, they share stuff that they know. And that's that's kind of been the culture we're trying to to develop at fame and working very hard on is a capacity building we're we're not bringing people in just to cure all these people we're we're trying to have the entire staff be all tanzanians and we help increase their knowledge and their equipment and their abilities any way we can but our plan is to have the entire staff and the whole hospital basically run by Tanzanians. So at, at, at some point, you have worked yourself out of a job in a good way? We're Absolutely. trying. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're definitely trying that. We are. So uh, lately, you know, we've, we've partly because of the reputation we have, we've gotten, we've been able to attract some really, really phenomenal doctors and nurses and people and so we have an amazing staff and so 
they do a wonderful job, and now we're working on trying to improve their management skills and their all their their abilities to where yeah they can basically run the place without us that's our they're doing it that's right our goal now. you know we do i mean we have a small volunteer program uh but but again you know for those people we frame it for them as you know you are coming in as partners mm-hmm. to our tanzanian uh doctors and nurses and your role is as a mentor a consultant. I mean, I think that's that's one of the things that is unique about our program is you know, in Tanzania, every all the doctors, not all the doctors, but the vast majority of doctors are generalists, and they they don't have an opportunity to go to specialty training. And so our team, I know that they get out of internship and they're thrown out there to do everything. Hmm. And you know, the the type of people that we've brought on board and that we're always looking for are lifelong learners, and they're hungry to learn about all the different specialties that, you know, you and I have access to here in the U.S. And so um, so that's, I mean, it, it is really a, a culture of lifelong learning that we've tried to promote there, and I think that that is central, you know, in addition to, you know, providing patient-centered care for underserved mm-hmm. communities. It's giving doctors and nurses, uh, the opportunity to grow professionally and be the best they can be. Any uh, one or two stories that stand out from patients who've just been through an incredible transformation, who had access to care through fame they otherwise would not have? There, oh. But I'm sure there are many. Oh, there, <laughs> there, there are there are i'm just the first one that just popped yeah. in my mind sounds kind of silly but i got i got uh this guy came and said you know my wife has been sick in bed for 6 years has not been able to work has not been able to do anything has just been completely incapacitated been to multiple doctors nobody can figure out what's wrong with her and she's just been bedridden for 6 years and so i i went and checked her out and it quickly became obvious to me that she had basically stomach ulcers, ulcer Mm -hmm. disease, Mm -hmm. and an infection with H. pylori. And so I just put her on the treatment of choice. The regime was triple therapy with two antibiotics and a proton pump inhibitor. And within a few weeks, she was like new again. Mm -hmm. And everybody was absolutely amazed that after being in bed for six years, this woman is suddenly cured and up working again and so the the word spread and all of a sudden i'm having dozens of people that all have these incapacitating stomach ulcers that were keeping them from doing anything and they started showing up for this magic cure mm-hmm. yeah susan any that stand out for you well a patient moment mm-hmm. does um and it happened early, and that's probably why it was kind of it cemented in my head. We had been seeing um, a fair amount of uh, rheumatic heart disease in kids at Fame, and you know, I, I'm not medical, but I learned that that was you know from untreated strep throat. And uh, the orphanage that we were also providing um, outreach services to um, decided that they really need to have all their children screened for strep. Um, just to make sure it got treated and so we were you know we took the mobile medical team out there and uh, started working our way through the the children and there was this little boy they called him Benja and uh, you know Frank's open your mouth you know and and it's looking in his throat and he's like because he hadn't complained and you know he said um, 
you know, Benja, you know, it's like a total pus mass and just a mess in his throat. And it's like, Benja, why, did, you know, why didn't you tell Mama that you had a sore throat? You know, and, and Benja said, well, it only hurts when I swallow. Oh. And I was like, wow. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and I think that it was just what became increasingly clear there is that so many people don't even know what it feels like to, to be healthy. Mm. Like, to feel you know, good. Yeah, to feel good. And so, um, you know, that was, that's just a moment I'll never, I'll never forget. It kind of locked in there. Yeah. Uh, also, early on, I remember there was a kid came in. Mom brought this little seven-year-old in, and he was having seizures. And I said, well, how often does he have seizures? Oh, he has like five to seven a day. So he's basically can't go to school, can't do anything. He's just completely wiped out by these seizures. And I said, have you been to see a doctor? Yeah. Did they put him on medicine? Yeah. And did it stop the seizures? No. Did you go back to the doctor? Yeah. What did he say? Just keep taking the same dose of medicine. And I said, how long has this been going on? And mom says, five years. So the kid had gone from age two to now he's age seven. He's already missed out first two or three years of school because he seizes all day long. So I just simply adjusted his medication, switched it to twice a day, and suddenly his seizures were gone. And the mom thought it was an absolute miracle. <laughs> like all of a sudden there was this kid that was basically just kind of a vegetable, unable to do anything, was now smart, curious, back in school, learning, doing stuff. So it it's pretty incredible when you you can actually – give someone their life back you know and what a feeling that must yeah, be yeah yeah save a life or give them a life back that's this functional yeah it's it's incredibly rewarding yeah. so i know so some of our listeners probably for, heard the first part of your story and said wait you were already you know improving the lives of children you were already saving people in the hospital and and you didn't consider what you were doing to to have the the big noble purpose there's some people right now who often think someday maybe after retirement you know that so there's this someday out there when they would do something different and i hope they don't all have to be at the the top of a mountain contemplating that they may die within 12 hours what would you just say to somebody who's deferring their someday <laughs> well uh, okay my entire life was kind of uh, i'm you know this is not part of the story, but I'm a recovering drug addict. So I've been clean for 35 years, clean and sober. But, you know, so all of my life I've been kind of chasing a rush, chasing a thrill, chasing something good. And um, what I discovered (laughs) after being hit in the head on top of the mountain, Kilimanjaro, is that what I'm doing now sort of beats any rush, any thrill, Anything I have been trying to achieve before, I'm now enjoying every day. And I, I, I wish I had been smart enough to start doing this a lot earlier. And, you know, instead of spending all those years just chasing money and junk, you know, if I'd have figured out much earlier how to, that it feels so much better if you can go out and take on something, a project bigger than yourself. And uh, change people's lives. Yeah. Well, how, and I realize you, I'm sure you have metrics as an organization, but how do you personally define success? Either of you, what? I know that's a very open question. You want me to start? Uh, 
Sure. Okay. Well, <laughs> I think for me, it's 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 almost a daily reinforcement of how incredibly valuable what we do is. I mean, we have patients telling us, we have our staff telling us that you know, there's there's. I have patients over and over come in and say. I've been to many, many doctors. I've never been to a place like Fame before. I've never been to a place where they actually care about me. They seem to really be interested in helping me get better. And we get people coming from further and further and further away. I mean, we have people coming every day from five to eight hours away traveling to get to Fame. And to me, that that is like, telling me that we're doing something right uh, I, I think for me uh, you know, I, I think for everyone it's a little bit different um, but success for me personally you know is the idea of you know getting to the end of your, getting to, to the end of you know my life and having people you know say you had a purposeful life an intentional life you you made um, life a little bit better you know, for for someone or for some people in one small corner of the world, you know, that you contributed to it being a gentler, safer, better place. Um, so, you know, for me personally, I think that that, that, that kind of encapsulates um, success. Um, probably one of the, the more gratifying uh, parts of what we do at Fame that, that I also thinks to, you know, think you know, I associate with success is empowering other people hmm. um, to be the best that they can be. It's it's incredibly fulfilling to see our Tanzanian team um, growing and you know just just do it, becoming the best that they can be. Yeah, Susan and Frank, thank you for your time here today, and thank you for sharing your talents in such profound ways. Appreciate it. Thank it was you, our John, pleasure. For Thanks for having us. To learn more, please visit FameAfrica, F-A-M-E, Africa.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite service and consider leaving a review. Until next time, keep living beyond the check.